You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Hi, everybody. I'm going to move some things and put my computer here. I'm going to move this. You guys, I'm so excited to be here. I'm really very grateful to be here. I have visited Rez one time. And when I came, it was super fun to be able to see. It was a little bit earlier on in the life of the church, and it was super fun to be able to see. Look what's growing up here. Look, it, I'm super excited. And I just have to say, oh, dude, hey, it's good to see you again, too. The last time I was here, just come here. The last time I was here, sorry, this is what's going to happen with me using this microphone. You probably could just set it and let me do my, let me do this because I'm going to, because I use it. I'm going to use it. You know what I'm saying? So, so last time I was here, I was actually making a record with, with my friend Rami. Do you get, some of you guys know Rami? And, and it was super fun. And Ava and I got to meet and spend some time in the studio. That was super fun. And, and before that, I got to visit, uh, just get to visit you guys. And this has been really fun. It's super fun to come and, and, and be in the church that Sean is leading because I don't know if you know, but I am Sean's hugest fan. I, I think that Sean is one of the best priests I've ever met. I think he's just one of the best guys I've ever met. And that's why we talk all the time, every week, multiple times a week, because the reality is I, I need Sean. And so even, even from a distance, we're still calling each other going, hey, hey man, um, this is what we're doing. <laughs> What's going on? How do you do this thing? How, how are you handling this issue? What's going on? So I don't know. Like I feel like I still have a co-pastor, and even though you don't know me, I get to be. I get to hear about you guys and to, and to hear what's going on. And I'm and I and I feel so invested in what's happening in the life of resurrection. And I'm super excited for the season that you guys are in. And I'm super excited to to be able to be here with you. So you know, my name is Rob Patterson. My wife Julie's right here. We've been married for 16 years or so, and we have four kids. My oldest daughter is turning 12 next month, and her name is Lyric. We have another daughter named Story. We have two sons, one is named Ransom, and one is named Archer. And we name our children this way because we're hippies. We're Santa's, <laughs> and we're keeping Santa Cruz weird. And I know, I get it, we stole that from you. But did you know we actually stole that from you? There's like stickers and everything. But I think it might be because we take it a little more seriously. We, what did you name your kids? Right? Right? I'm just representing Santa Cruz as being a little bit of an odd place. It's true. So Sean, Sean mentioned that we planted this church together, and I'm just super, super glad that we got to plant together. Because now I have a co-pastor for the rest of my life. He doesn't know it yet, but I plan on working with him until we die even if only by phone. But planting, planting the church isn't the only thing that I do. I actually have another part-time thing that I do, and I get to teach choir for junior and senior high students, which is super fun. I love getting to hang out with, with these junior hires and senior hires. It's one of the most, well, really fun parts of my week, getting to hang out with them. It's fun, it's also challenging, and it's kind of all of those things wrapped up. It's frustrating, all of that wrapped up together. It's this wonderful thing of teaching Quiet. Last year, uh, at the end of the year, we were singing this fairly difficult jazz piece, 
And it wasn't sounding super good. It was, it was, we were struggling a little bit with some of these jazz harmonies. And not only were we struggling a little bit with some of these jazz harmonies and how things were going, but, but really we, we weren't even focusing very much in class. It was maybe the end of the year. And so it was maybe a little bit understandable that that, that, that we wouldn't uh, be totally you know, engaged with what was going on at the moment. It was, it was understandable, but, but it meant that we weren't singing the parts correctly, and it meant that the song wasn't sounding as good as I knew it could, and I didn't really know what to do. And so the day of the performance comes, and all I could think to do was, look, we gotta have a rehearsal before we go out there and sing for your parents and your grandparents and for all these people who are coming to hear you, because quite frankly, it doesn't sound super hot. And, and so we, we, we have this rehearsal, and, and, and as soon as you know, my hand goes down for beat one, I'm like astonished. I'm like, how do they know the song all of a sudden? All of a sudden, it's like magic. They can sing the song, and it sounds amazing. And then we go out, I'm just kind of like, wow, this is really cool. And then we go out on, we go out on stage, and, and, and for, the, for, the, for the performance, they sang even better than they sang during that rehearsal right prior to to the, uh, the performance. They did this amazing job, they killed it. The parents and the grandparents loved it. They're like, this is the best thing that happens at the school. And I'm like, oh, I know, I always, it is always happens. <laughs> the students themselves were so proud of what they had accomplished and it makes total sense. I was so proud of them. I'm like, they did such a great, such a great job. But I asked myself, what in the world happened? How did we go from sounding so bad to sounding really good just in this one in this one day the difference between our rehearsals and our performance what I what I thought about was this difference it wasn't that it wasn't that our singing ability suddenly changed right it wasn't that like all of a sudden we got a bunch of new recruits into the choir who were all a bunch of superstars who could really just kind of carry everybody else the difference what i came to to think was the difference the difference was the level of engagement of the students, right? All of a sudden, with the people who were already there and the gifts that they already possessed, because all of a sudden they grew in their engagement with what was happening, like the pressure of the performance, the people there, whatever, everybody's like, okay, we gotta like really try all of a sudden. And it turns out that just trying and being really engaged, it made the difference between an okay performance and like a really great performance. It was a really good thing, just the level of engagement. Well, Father Sean just mentioned that he asked me to come and to talk with you this weekend about how Res is growing and how can Res continue to grow together as a church community, grow into your vision of living life together in the goodness of God, grow in your effectiveness in reaching the people of South Austin with the good news of Jesus Christ, and grow in your individual discipleship to the Lord. And so what I want to do this weekend is I actually want to try to approach that conversation of how do we grow together as a community by talking about how can we grow in our engagement with our faith? How can we grow in our engagement with our church community as individuals, but as a group as well? And so what I want to do is I want to talk to you specifically about how we can approach growing in our engagement in three key areas 
of our lives. The first one is going to be, how do we grow in engagement with our time? How do we grow in engagement with our money? And how do we grow in engagement with our hearts? That's where we're, gonna, that's where we're headed for this weekend. And as was the case with my choir, what I think you're going to notice is that we're not going to talk about how we need more of anything. And we're not going to talk about how we need different people or we need some superstar Christians to be here in order to accomplish the things that we're trying to accomplish. Instead, we're going to talk about how we can grow in our engagement with what we already have, with the people who are already here to make a difference in our own lives as individual Christians, but also in the lives of the people in South Austin. Now, before we get into those, to, to, to those different key areas, and specifically our first one for tonight, time, I want to start by talking a little bit about engagement itself. I think we got to take a step back, even before we can get to the topic, and talk about engagement itself. What is engagement in our faith and in our discipleship and mission? What does that require of us? What does it take to be engaged in our faith? And here's the first thing I want you to know. Engagement looks like discipline. Engagement looks like discipline. When, when, when my choir faced this performance, all of a sudden, they were focused, right? This laser focus. They ignored distractions. We all worked super hard to make something beautiful together. And something similar, what I want to suggest to you, is that something similar, that kind of laser focus, avoiding the distractions, that hard work, something similar is required of us as Christians if we want to effectively grow in our worship and in our discipleship. Now, concerning discipline, we need to say something about discipline here. The thing that makes discipline possible. The thing that makes that laser focus and the hard work in building for the kingdom of God possible is God's grace. It's the grace of God that makes hard work effective, makes it possibly effective. And that might be a bit of a surprise to some of us here. I don't know what your backgrounds are, but for some of us, that might surprise some of us. Because we might say, wait a minute, isn't grace opposed to works? Isn't grace opposed to works? And what I want to say to you is, no, grace is not opposed to works. Grace is opposed to merit, but not to works. One of the problems that we sometimes have in the modern American church is that we sometimes confuse works with merit, and so we think that both works and merit are opposed to grace. But works and merit, it turns out, are not the same thing. We are confusing that. We, Dallas Willard says we have a false opposition of works and grace because we have a false association of works with merit. Grace is opposed to meriting our salvation. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. This is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. But 
Grace is not opposed to us working and even working hard. In the very next verse, the very next verse in Ephesians, it says, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're created for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Grace does not oppose discipline. Grace does not oppose focus. Grace does not oppose hard work. Grace actually empowers us for discipline. Now this also might be a little bit different. Grace is not only that thing that says you are now forgiven, you're now in the club. Grace is that thing that actually comes underneath us and supports us and empowers us to live a different kind of life. Grace is the empowerment of God. Look at what Titus says in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to us all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. You see that? It is precisely the grace of God that trains us to be disciplined in our living. That's what the scripture says, to renounce some things. Grace trains us to renounce some things and then engage in other things. Now, I think that's super good news. I think that's really, really good news because it means that we're not left to our own in this room. We're not left to our own internal resources while we seek to grow in our engagement, in our mission and discipleship. We're not on our own. God's grace is actually empowering us to cooperate with him and then to grow in our engagement. So when we talk about growing engagement, what we're not talking about is you need to work harder with no aid. Instead, what we're saying is God's grace as coming up alongside you and underneath you and supporting you so that you can work in cooperation with what God is doing, those works that he's prepared for you beforehand, and that work can actually be made effective in your life and in the community by the grace of God. That's pretty good news, don't you think? Now, this doesn't mean that discipline will be easy, right? Just because God's grace is there doesn't mean that it's easy. Nor does it mean that we'll always enjoy discipline. Disciplining ourselves is actually difficult, isn't it? In fact, Hebrews 12, 11 says, now discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It always seems painful at the time, discipline. Discipline is a form of, self, of, of, of delayed gratification. Discipline is a form of delayed gratification. It may hurt now. I may have to forego something that I really want now, but it's worth it because the pain that I experience now produces something better in the future. You with me? Like when, when an Olympic athlete trains and trains and trains now, like this year, in order to get a gold medal in Pyeongchang next year, right? Or in order to get a gold medal in Tokyo in 2020. They're training already. We're, we don't care about what's happening in Tokyo yet, right? But they're getting ready for the Olympics. In Tokyo 2020, they're training. They're saying no to some things now. In order to say yes, the 
pain that they're experiencing now, they're hoping it's going to be all worth it when they get to stand on that podium and get a gold medal. In fact, this is exactly St. Paul's analogy in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Listen to what Paul says in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win it. Athletes exercise self-control. That's discipline, right? In what? He says, athletes exercise self-control in all things. Everything. Why? They do it to receive a perishable wreath, Paul says. A gold medal. But we, an imperishable one. Paul's talking about the Olympic athletes in his day who would discipline themselves for a year prior to the games, rigidly regulating their food and their exercise in order to win this wreath. But, he says, we as Christians, we're running this metaphorical race that requires an analogous kind of engagement. But our goal isn't just a perishable wreath, is it? Our goal is imperishable life with God. Verse 26, he says, so, because that's the case, I do not run aimlessly. He said, I don't lose sight of my goal. I don't lose sight of that laser focus that I have. Nor do I box as though beating the air, like just scattered and confused. It's like, that's pointless. I'm not going to do that. But, Paul says, I punish my body and enslave it. I discipline myself so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. There's a certain amount of discipline that it takes to engage in our faith, and it takes some work. It's like preparing to be an Olympic athlete. It may be painful now, but we're preparing for something so much better later on. Paul says, I keep my goal in front of me at all times, and having it right in front of me enables me to discipline myself so I can accomplish my goal. The only way that we can discipline ourselves effectively is if we, like, like Olympic athletes, always keep our goal before our eyes and make advanced decisions to discipline ourselves in pursuit of that goal. If we want to be disciplined, we have to make these advanced decisions. For instance, the only way an athlete says no to beer and pizza at this buddy's party is because he remembers, oh no, I'm pursuing a gold medal. And he's not, he's, he's, he's not wondering in the moment, I don't know, does the pizza work with my diet? Maybe it would be fine. It probably won't matter too much. He's not wondering because the athlete made a decision before he ever got to the party, right? An athlete knew, I've been training and training and training. I know that pizza and beer, so I'm going to go to the party, but I'm not going to have the pizza, right? This is like not crazy stuff, right? This is, we understand this when it comes to like trying to get a gold medal, working out. Well, for us, we also need to keep the goal of engagement with our discipleship always before our eyes. And we, too, need to make advanced decisions. That's the way we do that. We make decisions this weekend for the rest of our week. We make decisions this weekend for the rest of our month. We make decisions this weekend for the rest of our lives. Advanced 
Decision making. Did you know that you're going to be doing that kind of major work this weekend? It's a retreat. It's going to be fun. But you're also going to have an opportunity to actually like think, what happens when I go from here? How am I going to live my life so that I can stay engaged? So that res can stay engaged with one another. That's the kind of work we're going to be doing here in these times that we spend together. So we make advanced decisions to enable us to be disciplined, even when at the moment we want the pizza and beer. And I can tell you, I always want the pizza and beer. It's very rarely that I go, you know what? I don't need the pizza. Now you can keep the beer. It's only like when I'm sick. Other than that, I want the pizza and beer. If I say no to pizza and beer, it's because I've made an advanced decision. And maybe for you it's not pizza and beer. Maybe for you it's chocolate. Or maybe for you it's watching The Bachelor or something. The advanced decisions. Right? Maybe for you it's like binge-watching Stranger Things. I don't know what it is. But we make advanced decisions to figure out how are we going to live our life then. Because then is always this series of nows. So let's jump in tonight, all right? Let's jump in. And by the way, you, you, you've, you've heard that I'm, I'm going to be using some scripture. If you, if you have a Bible, that's great. You can get your Bibles out. You can follow along if you want. If you, if you want to take notes, you might want to do that and have some pens. You might want to write some things down. Because maybe not just what I say. It's, I'm not saying like, hey, you know what? I might say something that you find amazing. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is maybe the Lord, despite me, is actually going to talk to you this weekend. Maybe you might want to pay attention and be ready for it. What if God spoke to you? Let's dive in and let's see what, what, what we can discover together. There are a lot of good things that you and I can do with our time, right? We can spend our time in all kinds of good ways. I, tonight, I'm not even going to really touch on things that we might do with our time that are not helpful. Let's assume that we're talking about doing things with our time that are good. These are like good things that you can do with our time. There's lots of things that we can do with our time, good things. But if we wanna to grow together as a church community, then one thing we need to be disciplined in, just one thing that we need to all collectively be disciplined in, is meeting together. That's a way that we can use our time that we actually have to like make some advanced decisions about. We need to be disciplined in meeting together. Hebrews 10.25 says that one of the things Christians do is meet together. And in the book of Acts, we can see what meeting together looked like for some of the earliest Christians. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says this. Those early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Why do Christians meet together? To devote themselves to some very particular things. Have you ever asked yourself, why do I even go to church on Sundays? What's the point? Why would I gather together in a table group with my with my friends. What's the point of doing that, of making the effort? Christians gather together to devote themselves to some very particular things. That word devote here means to persist obstinately. 
in something, to persist obstinately, to devote ourselves to something. Acts is saying that the Christian church comes together to doggedly pursue, to devote ourselves to these four things. First, the apostles' teaching. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. 1 Timothy 4.13 says to give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhorting and to teaching. Did you know that the public reading of Scripture is something you cannot do by yourself? You can't, because it's public. It's the public reading of Scripture. Paul tells Timothy, devote yourself to that. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture and to exhorting and to teaching. Around 155 A.D., a guy named Justin Martyr, one of the church fathers, wrote this to describe the worship of the early church. I think this is fascinating. On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. All the people who live in the cities or in the country gather together. This is how it's been since the beginning. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Doesn't that sound a lot like what we do on Sunday mornings? Sounds, sounds a lot like what we do in the liturgy. In fact, the liturgy, the first half of the liturgy is devoted to the service of the word, just like they were doing in AD 155, when Justin Martyr was saying, this is how Christians worship. We gather together and we do it. Now we have, you and I have such easy access to the Bible on the, on, on the plane. I was reading my Bible on my phone, right? We can read the Bible anywhere we want. We have such easy access to the Bible as English speakers in America right now. Such easy access that our devotion to the apostles' teaching, to opening up the memoirs of the apostles, it should include personal Bible reading. That makes a lot of sense. We should spend some time reading the Bible. It's really not that hard to just pull it out and start reading it. But what I want to tell you is that our devotion to the apostles' teaching should not be limited to that. Should not be limited to reading it by ourselves. In addition to reading the Bible on our, by ourselves, Paul tells Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. But not only that, when we gather together, we have to learn how to interpret the Bible. We can't just read the Bible on our own. Have you ever noticed that people sometimes say, well, I've read the Bible, I know what it says, this is what it says, this is what the Bible says. And you say, well, but that's, that's your interpretation. Have you ever been in a small group where they say, and what does it mean to you? What does this passage mean to you? And like however many people there are, there's like a different meaning. We can have all different kinds of interpretations. Have you ever noticed that there's like over 30,000 denominations in the United States? Because a bunch of people read the Bible by themselves? Well, I got this interpretation. This is what I, what I figured out. We don't just read the Bible by ourselves. We come together in order to learn how to interpret the Bible along with the church. We read the apostles' memoirs, and then we hear the interpretation that the church has handed down through those apostles all throughout the ages. We learn to interpret Scripture not just by ourselves, but we learn to interpret Scripture with the church, with the people of God throughout the ages, isolating ourselves 
from the interpretation of the church, it can lead to some pretty wonky interpretations. You ever heard a wonky interpretation of the Bible? Do you remember Harold Camping predicting the end of the world would take place on October 21st, 2011? This is like very recent stuff. The world is gonna end. People are selling their homes. They're getting ready to go off and be raptured or whatever because Harold Camping said so. He read the Bible. He figured it out. And of course, it didn't happen. It wasn't gonna happen. And the church, the interpretation that had been handed down of the passages that Harold Camping was using throughout the ages, the church knew not to make such a prediction because the church taught how to interpret those passages. And it wasn't the way that Harold Camping was doing that. One of the primary ways that you and I learn sound interpretation of the Bible is by coming together week by week to hear scripture read aloud and then to hear a theologically responsible exhortation concerning those scriptures that is in keeping with the interpretation that the church has handed down from age to age. Are you with me? Thank God that you guys have some priests in your church who have bothered to find out what that interpretation is so that they can tell you, not that it's inaccessible to you, but I imagine most of you have some jobs. You got other things going on. These guys, they get, they've devoted themselves. They get to learn, Perry gets to learn these things. Sean gets to learn these things specifically so they can hand it on to you. Coming together as the church, it's one of the primary ways where we learn not only to hear the word of God, to memorize the word of God, but to learn how to interpret the word of God. The second thing that we do when we meet together, not only to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, the second thing we do is we meet together to devote ourselves to fellowship, spending time with other followers of Christ. Now, for some of us, this is great, right? This is fun. We get to spend time together. We get to hang out. This is exciting. This is like the good part of churches the fellowship, the getting to hang out, the relationships. But I gotta say, for others of us, fellowship costs. <laughs> fellowship is sometimes painful. I don't know if that's the way it is for anybody in here, but I know some introverts among us, they can dread passing the peace. Does anybody in here, no, you don't have to answer this. There's people in our church who are like, oh, we're passing the peace later. <laughs> they go out in the lobby and then they'll come back. We didn't, we can come back in. It's painful for some of them. And they're learning, hosting a small group. That can take a lot of effort, right? A lot of time, having people come over. It can even cost some cash. That's, ah, it costs. Gathering with people who are not like you. That can be a bit uncomfortable, right? Because it's just hard. If you're a parent, getting the kids out the door, this can feel like a monumental task. Fellowship? I gotta put all these people in this vehicle and then listen to them scream the entire drive. It's like painful. If you're not a parent, listening to those kids make sounds in the gathering when you're fellowshipping, it can kind of challenge your contemplative mood. I'm in this really good calm space and this kid is not. And yet the body of Christ is about fellowshipping not just with old people, not just with middle-aged people, not just with Young people, not just with babies, like everybody, right? All fellowshipping together and it presents some challenges. Sometimes it costs. But here's the thing, you guys. We don't just gather together because it's fun. Did you know that? We don't just gather together as Christians because it's enjoyable. 
or because it's socially advantageous, because this is like what my friends are doing, so I may as well do it too. That's not why Christians gather together. And we don't just gather together because it's easy. That's not why Christians gather together. We gather together because none of us in this room can be the fullness of the church by ourselves. Not one of us can do that. You can't be the fullness of the church by yourself. You can't be the body of Christ by yourself. Ralph Wood, he's a professor at Baylor University. He has students who says, well, but you know, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. And he says, that's right. You do have a personal relation with Jesus. And since you have a personal relation with Jesus, you need to get into relation with his person, which happens to be called the church. You can't, you can't be the fullness of the church by yourself. You've got to be in communion with the body of Christ. Nobody can experience life together in the goodness of God by yourself because it's not together, right? Again, describing the early church, Justin Martyr says this. He says, after services, we constantly remind each other of these things. After services. After, are, are, are we spending time together after services? Now all of a sudden? After services, we constantly remind each other of these things. Those who have more come to the aid of those who lack. And we are constantly together. That's just a martyr. We all need encouragement, right? We all need examples to follow. We all need accountability. We all need friends who understand and support our commitment to Christ and at the same time understand and are willing to process with us when we have doubts. We need people to help us out. We all need people. We need one another. And you know what? We need even people who are not up front. Have you ever thought, well, but that's their job. They need to be there because it's their job. But you know what? We need each other even when it's not your job. The church needs people who are not celebrating the Eucharist at the altar. The church needs people who don't wear funny dresses on Sunday morning. You know what I'm saying? Some weird fashion choices, my man. It's not just, it's not just for people who wear the funny white square. The church needs all kinds of people, even people who don't have a lot to say. Sometimes I think we think, well, the people in the church who really have something to offer are the people who got a lot of words to say. They always know how to say the right thing. They can pray the right prayer. The church needs even people who don't have a lot of words to say because every single person here has a ministry of presence. You all have a ministry of your presence, just being together. For example, this, I want to tell you about Judith. Judith's husband ended up in the ICU after a car crash. She's in shock. She's stewing in the hospital waiting room. And then Lois came to visit with her. Well, not really visit, more like sit with her. And she didn't even know Lois. And the account I read says, with an occasional hand on her shoulder, or a smile, or a warm glance, Lois's presence communicated peace, love, and the calm assurance that Judith was not alone. Of all the people that came to the hospital during the remaining days, 
Judith remembers none ministering so powerfully as her new friend Lois. All the people who came and had something to say. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when we try to help each other, we're trying to make, oh, you're going through a hard time? Well, it'll get better. Sometimes I think that we're actually trying to make ourselves not have to deal with the pain of somebody else. Like, I don't really want to deal with that. So it's fine. You're fine. But instead, to just sit with somebody who's like grieving and put your hand on their shoulder and be like, I'm with you. That sucks. That's really hard. But I'm here. Every one of you has a ministry of presence. We meet together to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. John 6, 53, Jesus says some crazy things. Listen to this. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Come again, Jesus? These are a bunch of Jewish people, right? Eating blood is like forbidden. Cannibalism is also frowned upon. Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. And then later on at the Last Supper, he says, take some bread and says, this is my body. Take some wine and says, this is my blood. Explaining the Eucharist in the early church. Again, let's turn to Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr says, we do not receive these things as common bread and common drink, but... As Jesus Christ, our Savior, being incarnate by God's word, took flesh and blood for our salvation, so also we have been taught that the food consecrated by the word of prayer, which comes from him, is the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. John 6, 54, Jesus said, Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. That's why we dedicate the second half of the liturgy each week to receiving the Eucharist. Because when we receive the Eucharist, we're not just receiving bread and wine. We're not just receiving some sort of culinary mnemonic device to remember some sacrifice that happened 2,000 years ago. We are receiving life from God. We're receiving life from Jesus. We meet together then to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. The prayers. The Christian life without praying, it's like, it's like physical life without breathing, right? It doesn't work. And as was the case with devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, we don't just devote ourselves to private prayer, although private prayer is essential, but also to corporate prayer. Praying together. Actually praying together. And notice, I think this is fascinating. Notice the definite article in that verse we just read. They devoted themselves to the prayers. That's actually what that verse says. Acts 2.42 isn't just talking about freestyle prayers, are those, although those are super good, necessary. Acts is talking about the pre-written prayers of the church, which probably included the Psalms. The church was praying the Psalms early on because they received their worship from the Jews. 
They're praying probably some Jewish prayers. Blessed are you, O Lord our God. If you read some old, old writings, they say things that that sound like those Jewish prayers. And it probably included some newly written Christian prayers, including the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now I know at Res, you guys love spontaneous prayers. I know you love just being able to freestyle in a prayer together, and that's awesome. And at the same time, I know that you love spirit-filled written prayer as well, and I'm so glad you do, and I'm glad because of a few reasons. First, because it helps us pray together. It really helps us pray together. Have you ever noticed how when, when somebody's praying freestyle, it's so good, but sometimes you're like, ah, that part I'm not so sure about. And Jesus, I just must say on behalf of us all, and then you're like, ah, on behalf of you. <laughs> it might have just been a mistake. It was a good meaning. It was well-meaning, you know? Like, we, we meant it well, but it was, kind of, it was a slip of the tongue or something. So pre-written prayers help us pray together because we've gone through this whole mental process of I have to hear what you're saying, I have to understand what you're saying, and then I can offer my assent to the Lord and say, yes, this is my prayer too. When you pray, for instance, the prayers that are in the Book of Common Prayer, you're like, oh, we did that last time. I already know my assent is there. I can engage in that in a completely different level. Right? My, I've already gone through that whole process. Now we can pray together. Not only that, but, but pre-written prayer enables us to unite our voices, our united voices. You have an individual voice and your voice matters, which is what we hear so much. That's true. Your voice does matter. But did you know your voice gets to be included into the one unified voice of the church so that you don't only have to have your voice, you get to have the church's voice and you get to be a part of it. Pre-written prayers help us do that. Not only that, pre-written prayers also get to teach us how to pray. I mentioned the prayer that Jesus gave his followers. In Luke 11, Luke chapter 11, that prayer, when he gave that prayer to his followers, it was given in direct response to a specific request. Lord, teach us how to pray. How, How do we pray? And Jesus says, well, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. Written prayers also form us in the way of Christ. Did you know that? There's an old maxim. It says the law of prayer is the law of belief. In other words, the way we pray shapes the way that we believe. It shapes our theology. It redirects our hearts Godward. The way we pray does. Written prayers, they also often say just precisely what our hearts long to say but can't quite put into words. Have you ever been in crisis and you're like, I want to pray, but I just, I don't know what to pray right now. I'm kind of stuck. Life is really hard right now. Having some of those pre-written prayers, you can be like, you know what? This is expressing very sincerely. It's expressing very authentically my deepest heartfelt prayer that I just couldn't muster right now. Couldn't figure it out on my own. So we meet together to devote ourselves to, to doggedly pursue the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And you know, when we do these things, at least three things happen. When we doggedly pursue meeting together, at least three things happen. First, we are personally formed in the way of Christ. You know that we all need solid, like, orthodox, historically grounded doctrine, right? We all need that. 
We all need God's grace in the Eucharist. We all need accountability and support. We all need the breath of praying with the church. Yes, we can and we should offer mental assent to Christian doctrine on our own as we bike or we jog the trail. Yes, we can and we should have great friendships with those who don't yet know Jesus. And yes, we can and we should pray on our own. And yes, we can and we should receive aspects of God's grace in ways other than in the Eucharist. But I want you to hear this. We cannot experience the fullness of our faith. We cannot experience the summit of the corporate expression of the church's worship of Almighty God without meeting together. You can't do it. Second, when we meet together, the parish community is formed. When we spend time together, we engage in that ministry of presence to one another. If a friend who's having a hard time comes together with the church, they're like, you know what, I'm having a really tough week. I'm going to go to church. I'm just going to give it a shot. And they don't see you? Well, then you miss an opportunity to bless that person with your presence. You had something to offer. But when we're all together week after week, we're encouraged just by being together. Even if you don't have all kinds of things to say, even if you're not the one standing up in front, or you're not the one reading the books, or you're not the one leading the music, you have something. You have a ministry of presence just by being together and singing together and praying together and eating together. The community as a whole is collectively built up by your presence. By you being here. That's how important your presence is in the life of the church. Third, when we meet together, mission is fueled. The mission of the church is fueled by meeting together. Father Sean has a lot to say about this, and I'm sure he's talked to you about it in the past. And if he's not, he will later. Or if he hasn't, he will later. I'm not going to jump on what he has to say. He has such good things to say about this. But suffice it to say, right after communion, do you remember when we pray this? We thank God, thank you God for feeding us with the body and the blood of Jesus. And now, Father, send us out into the world to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. We come in contact with Jesus in the Eucharist so that I can recognize him, so that I can go out into the world, be sent to be a witness to what I've seen. Right? Nobody gets called into court to be a witness of something they haven't seen. Are you with me? We come to the Eucharist to see Christ, and then we are sent out to be witnesses of that which we have seen, that which we have come in contact with. At Christ's table, we receive the nourishment of our souls. We're granted life, God's own life, and then we're sent out refreshed and filled up to engage in mission and service throughout the week. We go from the table of our Lord to the table of our home. We go from the table of our Lord to the table in our office. We go from the table of our Lord to the table in our school, where we can then live as grace-filled witnesses of Christ. Resurrection, engaging with our presence, matters. Meeting together matters. But presence takes time, doesn't it? It just takes time. And time these days, 
Man, it is like our most precious commodity. It just takes time. We all have busy schedules. And we're not just engaged in things that are bad, right? We're engaged in those good things. And the last thing we need is for somebody to go, you know what else you could do? Here's another thing I'd like you to squeeze into your schedule. And so what I want to ask you is not, how can you add more to your schedule? I don't want to ask you that question. But the question that I do want you to think about, you might even want to write it down. Think about this. What can you rearrange in your schedule? What can you rearrange in your priorities to ensure every week you're worshiping with rest? Every week. That might sound sort of extreme. Every week? Yeah. Because of everything we just talked about. That's how important it is. That's how we grow in our engagement with one another for the sake of discipleship and for the sake of mission. What can you rearrange in your schedule and priorities to ensure church attendance, to ensure table groups, to ensure serving others? What I'm asking you is this. What will you say no to so that you can say yes to something else? Like the athlete we talked about who says no to beer and pizza right now. Not because beer and pizza are bad, but because beer and pizza don't They don't help you get a gold medal. What do we say no to now, even if it's a good thing, in order to say yes to that thing that's even better? Maybe you say no to that sports league for your kids that has its games on Sunday mornings. I know that's a tough one for for folks in my town. That's a tough one. Games are on Sunday mornings. I can't come. What can you say no to? Maybe you say no to that sports league because maybe your child needs to know We're a part of the church, more than we're a part of soccer, more than we're a part of football. I don't know. Maybe you say no to staying out super late on Saturday night. Maybe you say no to staying out super late on Saturday night so that you have some energy to engage when you're there on Sundays because sort of sleeping through it, maybe I don't know what that does for you. I think I heard something that was helpful. I'm not totally sure. Who knows? But being like present helps, right? So maybe you say no so that you're ready. Maybe you say no to that extra commitment that would be a good commitment. Be really good. But you go, you know what? I'm going to have to say no because I've got this table group that I belong to. These are my people I got to be with. You want to come with me? You are totally welcome to come be a part of this. I don't know what the specifics are for your life. And quite frankly, I don't even want to try to prescribe that for you. But what I do know, what I do know is that growing in engagement takes discipline. That's what it takes. And discipline looks like advanced decision-making. Saying no to something in advance so that I can say yes to something better later on. And I just want to remind us of that truth tonight. And encourage us all to go to your day planner and ask God. Seriously, ask the Lord. Have you ever considered that? God, how would you like me to spend the time that you have given me? Where would you like me to invest my presence? Because it matters where I'm present. And I know it. Where would you like me to invest my presence? 
and then make some Olympic athlete-like decisions that enable us to engage with our presence for the sake of mission and discipleship. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.